1 Samuel 24, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 209. And when you found that, would you stand with me? I'll read this for us just as you're turning there to give you a bit of context of what's going on here. We've been seeing for the last two weeks how David is, is rising in power, in, um, what's the word, like popularity. David is the man right now, and yet for one guy in particular, he's not, which is Saul. Saul is very upset about the fact that David is rising up and becoming more popular. These songs are being sung about him. And so last week we saw in particular with this uh, balance of uh, David and Jonathan and how Saul finally revealed, no, 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 his, his jealousy, his uh, anger has turned into a murderous rage. He wants to see David wiped out, killed. And much of the chapters that follow and lead up to this uh, are very much uh, a sense of Saul chasing David all around. He's chasing him all around the countryside. Just before this in chapter 23 is a, a scene that looks like it's something out of an Old West movie. Literally, David and his army are going along one side, and Saul and his army are on the other side of the mountain. They're looking at each other. I see you. And, and then it's only because uh, Saul gets told, hey, the Philistines are attacking our homeland. He has to break off the chase and go back and deal with that before he can come back and deal with David. And that's where we pick up our story here. In verse uh, 1 of 24, look with me here. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, that's what you think. And it doesn't say, but he went in for a while. Okay? That's all I'm going to go with there. He goes in to relieve himself. Listen, though. David and his men were also in the far back of the cave. So they're in the same cave that he goes into. And the men said, verse 4, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And David crept up unnoticed, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Let's see what that's about. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to the men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down to the ground and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen to men when they say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom is the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, 
Is that your voice? David, my son. And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king. That the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Just ask God's blessing on this time in his word. Spirit of God, we are asking now you to meet with us as we come to your word. We believe that this is a word inspired by your spirit, is a living word, and that you have something specifically in mind for all that you've gathered here today, just as you had something in mind for me as I studied this this past week. So God, would you accomplish that purpose in us? Would you bring about that change, bring about that renewal, bring about whatever it is that you purpose to do? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. So there they were. Just the two of them now, the the hunter and the hunted, alone in the darkness. And, And in a most unlikely twist of fate, or was it divine providence... With knife in hand, the hunted man now has a clear path in order to take revenge on the man that he's been fleeing from. But rather than take out his vengeance by his own hand in an act of of free, unmerited grace, he sets his enemy free, unwilling to become the man the hunter has wrongly assumed him to be all these years and leaving justice and even his own vindication to God. Now, I'm speaking, of course, of that powerful scene at the end of Victor Hugo's classic novel turned Broadway musical, Les Miserables, when Jean Valjean lets Javert go free. I don't know whether Hugo had this scene from 1 Samuel 24 in mind when he wrote his book in 1862, but regardless, what you see, both of these stories powerfully illustrating is the surprising, the the disarming, the transforming power that results whenever someone who's been transformed by grace themselves offers grace to an enemy instead of retribution, however justly deserved. We're continuing this morning in our teaching series, uh, After God's Own Heart, looking at the life of a man named David that is chronicled for us in books of 1 and 2 Samuel. A man that the Bible itself describes this way as being after God's own heart. And as we continue to trace the really winding, unpredictable path of David from the time that he is anointed to be the next king of Israel to some point in the future here when he will actually become the king, what we see in our passage today is a veritable case study of what it looks like for the one seeking to be after God's own heart to be presented with the opportunity to take justice into your own hands. How will David 
respond to this opportunity so clearly set up by God to take vengeance on the man who's been hunting him? What's he going to do? Or as you think about these circumstances, what about you? How would you respond if you were put in these circumstances? Well, I think that question in particular actually makes this passage still so incredibly relevant for us today because think about it. Every single one of us here today are presented with this same opportunity in our lives all the time. Now, no, you may not have to decide whether or not to take the life of someone in the bathroom stall next to you. Probably not. But you are all the time regularly faced with the opportunity to carry out justice against someone who's wronged you. And like David, like Jean Valjean, when faced with that opportunity, we all have to decide whether or not we're willing to take shortcuts to what we believe God's purposes for us are, and whether or not we truly trust in God to vindicate us when we've been treated unjustly. So, in order to help us learn how David was able to respond rightly to this opportunity and how we can learn more and more to respond as he did whenever we're faced with these opportunities in our own lives, I want to look at this passage this morning in just two ways. I want to show you resisting shortcuts to promise and then overcoming roadblocks to promise. Just those two things. Resisting shortcuts, overcoming roadblocks to promise. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage? 1 Samuel 24, follow along with me as we look at this next scene in David's life, a man after God's own heart. Okay, so let's look first of all at resisting shortcuts to the promise. Ethan, I'm going to ask you if you can take that dial right at the very top of the one that says wireless mic and just turn it down a little bit. The gain is a little bit Awesome. Hey, there we go. Better. Now, of course, any discussion about shortcuts, we're going to have a discussion about that. We need to, first of all, differentiate right away between taking a shortcut and simply learning how to do something more efficiently. Okay, those are not the same thing, right? Taking a shortcut, learning to do something more efficiently, totally different. I, I'm all for working smarter and not harder. Come on. So it's not the same thing, but listen, you listen to anybody who's accomplished anything of value in their lives, whether maybe they've won an Olympic gold medal, they've mastered a, a musical instrument, maybe they've got an amazing marriage and family, whoever it is, they're all going to repeat some version of, look, there are no shortcuts to getting here. There aren't any. Okay, or they're going to say something like one guy who said, taking shortcuts will get you more quickly to the place you don't want to be then they'll get you to the place you're seeking. I think that's true. That's been my own experience anyway. And yet, shortcuts are an interesting thing, aren't they? Because while we would likely all respond negatively to someone who wants to take shortcuts when it comes to things that are important to us, somebody else doing that, you know, we, we don't exactly want our dentist to kind of take a shortcut past the like freezing stage before he goes to the root canal. We, we, don't, we don't approve of that, but when it comes to us, somehow... Eh, a little bit more open to consider the possibility that shortcuts could be a viable option, you know, to, to getting somewhere, particularly when it's something that's going to help us get there easier, faster, whatever. I mean, for an example, when I was a, a, 
a 95-pound-year-old, like, junior high kid in high school, I remember uh, I was quite willing to take the shortcut that I was offered. Uh, I was going to be a six-week, no-working-out-needed shortcut in order to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger that Joe Weider and his protein powder were offering. I, I wanted to take that shortcut. Yes, please. It sounds good. Clearly, it didn't work, but <laughs> metabolism is slowing all the same. Anyway, as it relates to shortcuts, although there's all kinds of other layers, there's all kinds of sub-narratives going on in this story, at the end of the day, the opportunity that David has here to kill Saul, to carry out vengeance against him, is essentially the opportunity to take a shortcut to the throne that God has promised David will one day be his. The opportunity to kill Saul. It's an opportunity to take a shortcut to getting to this place that's been promised to David, the throne that's been promised to him. We saw that back in chapter 16. Remember, the prophet Samuel is sent to anoint one of Jesse's sons, and David is the one God reveals to anoint as the next king of Israel. Like, with a single blow from his sword, David can end all the waiting, all the politics, all the running around for his life, hiding in caves in a moment and fast-track himself to palace life. He could do it. And when you look at verse 4, you see this opportunity. It isn't just obvious to David. It's obvious to everyone else in his army as well. Look at verse 4. David's army, they, they're, they're, they're standing there with him. They see Saul come in like, who could believe it? And they say, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand for you to deal with as you wish. So everybody's on page here. But when you get to the second half of verse 4 and into verse 5, instead of returning back to his men with Saul's head like he did with Goliath, David returns with nothing more than a corner of Saul's robe and feeling all guilty and conscience stricken about doing that. I mean, when he does that, you can understand why David's men are like completely confused at what he's doing. And David has to restrain them from going to take care of the job themselves. Because they're just like, listen, if you're not going to do it, give me my sword. I'll go take care of it. That's the attitude here. And he has to restrain them saying, no, no, we cannot do this thing. And as you read this first section of the passage, at the very least, the questions you come out of these first seven verses with, first of all, why would David not take this opportunity that the Lord had given him to deal with Saul? And secondly, if he hadn't even so much as scratched Saul, why is he feeling so conscience-stricken? Just about cutting off the edge of his robe. Well, who cares? Good questions. Uh, uh, I'll deal with the second question first, and then we'll talk about why David would pass on this opportunity given to him. The short answer as to why David felt so conscience-stricken about cutting off the edge of Saul's robe is that all through the Bible, the, the outer robe that somebody wore had tremendous significance as to what their position and their status was. So whether that's the robe of a king, the robe of a high priest, a prophet, a, 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 the patriarch of a family. Remember when the prodigal son returns home, what does the father say? Take my best robe and put it on him. Because the outer robe was a way of conferring privilege and position and power to someone. So, in fact, there's actually two instances in 1 Samuel here before this where someone's robe carries this kind of deep significance. In chapter 15, uh, uh, Samuel's had enough of Saul. He's walking away. Saul grabs him by the robe and tears it. And Samuel says to him, So will the kingdom be torn from you and given to another. So there's all this significance to the robe. And then, as we saw 
Last week and the week before, chapter 18, when Saul's son Jonathan gives David his robe, along with a bunch of his other armor and stuff, he's conferring a kind of royal privilege on David just by giving him the outer robe. And so, here's what I see. In cutting off the edge of Saul's robe, what David intends is really a symbolic act of vengeance against Saul, saying basically, no, I'm not going to kill you, but guess what? Peace by peace, I'm going to take your position from you. I'm going to take your power. I'm going to take that piece by piece, and it's going to become mine. That's, that's really symbolically what he's doing by cutting off the edge of the robe. And, and no sooner has he had the thought and carried it out, he feels conscience-stricken. His conscience convicts him, and he says there in verse 6, The Lord forbid I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or that I should lift my hand against him. And he is the anointed of the Lord. Now, there's two, there's kind of a double significance to that because, on the one hand, he, he realized this is an offense against God. He's saying, This is God's anointed. I shouldn't be doing anything. I shouldn't be lifting my hand against him at all. But think about it David is also the Lord's anointed, isn't he? So, in a sense, he's kind of setting up, he doesn't want to set up a precedent of, Hey, if you don't like the way I'm ruling, feel free to come in and take me out or start cutting off pieces of my robe. He's also setting up a future precedent of how the Lord's anointed should be treated. So that's why David feels so conscience-stricken. He knows what's in his heart. He knows why he's done this. But as to the first question, why would David pass on this opportunity from the Lord to take vengeance on his enemy? The simple answer is, and every commentator I read agreed with this, look anywhere in 1 Samuel and you'll find there's no record anywhere of the Lord ever saying these words to David. Nowhere does the Lord say to David, I will give your enemy into your hands to deal with as you wish. Doesn't, it's not there. Okay, so well, where did David's men come up with that quote? Well, okay, maybe God didn't exactly say those words, but clearly, just look, David. He's brought him right into the cave. Clearly, that's what he wants you to do. Like, we're we're just interpreting God's actions and telling you what we're paraphrasing for him. Clearly, he wanted you to take him out. That, 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 that's, that's why David's just like, uh, I don't remember that. And this is where I just want to stop for a minute. I just want to stop and camp here for a moment as we think about how this plays out in our own lives today. Because here's the thing. That voice, the voice of David's men is the voice that plays inside every single one of our heads. It plays in all of our heads whenever you come across the opportunity to strike back at someone who's treated you unjustly, who's harmed you in some way. It's the voice, you're given that opportunity to strike them, and it's just this self-justifying voice that's like, okay, clearly, God's giving you the opportunity. You, it's okay to strike back. It's good. It's the voice of David's men that we all hear in our heads. It's the voice that confuses opportunity with divine endorsement completely ignoring the fact that um, God isn't the only one who gives us opportunities. Uh, Garden of Eden example. Um, remember, Jesus himself is given an opportunity by Satan in the wilderness to, to shortcut the path to redemption without having to experience the pain and the agony of the cross. Satan says, just bow to me. You don't, you don't need to go through all that. Just bow to me. I'll get you all the kingdoms. I can give them to you. Offering him the, the shortcut, the opportunity to get there. And so, beyond having no recollection whatsoever of God ever making this kind of promise to him, 
the, the thing that enabled David to see killing Saul as nothing more than a shortcut to realizing God's promise is that he's just he's self-aware enough, he's, he's attuned enough to the Holy Spirit's voice to recognize that listening to the voice of his man, in doing that, he'd have to sacrifice his character in order to gain the throne. That's why he sees it as a shortcut. He'd have to sacrifice his character in order to realize the promise. And so, for David, the ends don't justify the means. He's not willing to just take the fastest route to get there. And what David knew then, you and I, we we can apply to any opportunity that we're faced with today in the exact same way. Namely, if an opportunity that you're presented with to, to see justice happen... to to gain security, career success, happiness, greater sexual intimacy, relational fulfillment, whatever it is, when that opportunity means sacrificing your integrity, sacrificing your values, sacrificing what you know clearly from God's word to be wrong, then it's a shortcut. If you need to sacrifice your character in order to take that opportunity, it's a shortcut. And... It will only get you more quickly to the place you don't want to be. Namely, further and further away from the heart of God. All right, that's resisting shortcuts to the promise. There are no shortcuts to get there. It will require work. It will require time and effort to get there. And it will require waiting on God's timing. There are no shortcuts, and we must resist them. Secondly... Last thing I want to show you from our passage is overcoming roadblocks to promise. Overcoming roadblocks to promise. And I want to spend a few minutes looking at this because although David doesn't want to take shortcuts to realize this promise that he's going to be the next king, he does want to realize it, right? He actually does want to get there at some point. And a very clear roadblock in the path of seeing that promise realized is Saul. Saul is a roadblock who is presently seeking to hunt David down and take his life before it can happen, although there's no indication that he knows that David has been anointed. What I want to show you from the remaining verses of our passage is how David is enabled to overcome this roadblock to God's promise to him, not by seeking to take matters in his own hands. We just saw he had the opportunity to do that if he wanted, but by submitting himself to God, submitting himself to God's timing, and trusting God to bring about justice for the very real wrongs that have been committed against him. Which I think is a core faith issue, actually, for a lot of us, and the reason that we often seek to take justice into our own hands. Why? Well, because although we might say we believe, we know God sees all, he, he understands all, and we believe one day he's going to bring about justice for every wrong that's ever taken place, either we don't really believe that day's coming, Maybe it's going to come someday. I don't know. We don't really trust that it's going to happen. Or, more often than not, I find, maybe we just don't believe that God's justice is going to be as severe as we believe it should be for the things that have been done against us. We don't, we don't, want, to, we don't want to hand over justice to Him because we want to make sure the right punishment gets levied out. Now, I understand that this is based on a miscarriage of justice that we sometimes see in our legal system. We just like, what if justice doesn't happen? What if it's not enough? But I think really underneath those kind of questions and doubts really is a kind of a 
I would say it's a functional atheism when it comes to the justice of God. All of a sudden, we're not so sure he really does do anything about this stuff. He really is going to bring about justice. But as you read on, what you see here is, listen, it's only, it's only David's fundamental trust in the justice of God that keeps him from taking Saul's life. That's the only reason he can let him get away. You've got to remember, in this time, these ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was the law was the lex talionis law, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That was the law of the land of this day, and anyone who has siblings understands this law. You hit me this hard, I need to hit you back that hard. We can't, it's got to be balanced. This was the law of the land here. So yes, while there were some protections for royalty, generally speaking, if someone was trying to kill you and you killed them first, nobody had a problem with that. Yeah, of course. That was the law of the land, which is just to say Saul really is trying to kill David. Okay, this situation is reversed. Saul's not letting David walk away. He's going to take him out. And so David really does have a just cause to take Saul's life when he had that opportunity in the cave. But now, here, not only does David let Saul get away unpunished, but look what he does in verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord the king. And then when Saul looked at behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground, which is crazy, right? Clearly, David has never seen a horror movie before because generally speaking, when, when you're hiding and the person tries to kill you, gets away, you don't come out and be like, hey, hey, I was in the cave with you just then. You didn't see me, but like you don't reveal yourself to the person trying to kill you. And yet, listen, so deep is David's trust in God's ability to vindicate him before Saul and to fulfill what he's promised to him, no matter what the roadblock is. David not only reveals himself to Saul, he lowers himself to the most humble, vulnerable of positions, prostrate, face down on the ground. This is what police officers tell you to do when they're ready to arrest you. Lie down on the ground, face down. It's a completely vulnerable position. You've got no way to escape from this position. He's putting himself in a position that if Saul wanted to, he could carry out his murderous plot right now. And yet David is so trusting in God's ability and God's justice that he's willing to do this. And then in verse 9 15, what you see is really David pleading his innocence before Saul, revealing how wrong Saul has been about him all this time all on the basis of his demonstrated act of mercy in sparing Saul's life. He's got the evidence. He's got that piece of his cloak in his hand saying that I had the opportunity and I had the justification to take your life. And he's saying to him, look, if I'm not the person that everyone's telling you. I mean, if I wanted to kill you, I could have just done it now. That's clearly not my plan. That's not what I'm trying to do. But what's interesting is that if you look closely at verses 12, and verse 15, as much as David, he's, he's pleading with Saul, he's, he's appealing to him, what you see is that David also recognizes that there is an invisible third party to whom he is truly submitting his appeal. Look at verse 12, first of all. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. My hand will not touch you. Verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider 
my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And then he waits. Having submitted himself to Saul and then ultimately to God, he just waits. And what's the result? Well, if you look at verse 16 to 21, it clearly shows us now Saul's own conscience is convicted. And the king of Israel is reduced to a weeping, repenting mess before David. He's crying, he's weeping aloud, so powerfully transforming to him. It's this undeserved act of grace in the face of his unjust pursuit of David to kill him. He can't believe it. Verse 19, I think, really highlights the core of his wonder at this amazing grace demonstrated to him. He says, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? According to the law of lex talionis, no, absolutely not. But according to the law of grace, yes. The law of grace says absolutely guilty are set free. Those who deserve justice are pardoned. Absolutely, yes. And as we think about what this could look like in real time, in your life, and in mine today, I don't think you need to look any further than that wound, whatever it is, unjustly inflicted upon you by someone else, and ask yourself this question. As I seek justice for this wrong committed against me, to whom am I looking to bring it about? As I seek justice for this wrong committed against me, to whom am I looking to bring it about? Am I looking to God? Am I trusting God to bring about justice for me? Or do I believe I need to bring about justice for myself? Now I know, yes, whenever anyone even suggests this idea, you need to trust in God for justice, trust Him to bring it about, there's invariably two responses that come out. The first one is, people are going to ask, oh, are you saying it's wrong for me to desire justice for myself when someone's wronged me, criminally or not? And the answer is, absolutely not. It's not wrong at all to desire justice to be carried out when you've been wronged, or even to play a part in seeing that happen. Remember, First of all, at a fundamental level, the reason you desire for justice in the first place is because you were made in the image and likeness of a triune God who is just. So seeking, desiring justice is simply imaging the one who created you. That's a part of your character because that's God's character. He's just. And beyond that, it's important to recognize, hey, David is also desiring justice for himself here. It's not like he's like, hey, it's cool. No problem. He, he, re, he wants justice. He wants vindication. And God is using him to play a part in that justice taking place. The only difference, and this is key, I need you to hear me. The only difference is that for David, he understands himself as nothing more than the plaintiff. And God is the one who's the judge. Which means he understands the roles properly. He's the plaintiff. He's presenting the case, but God is the one who judges. And I think for most of us, that's where we go wrong in our desire for justice. Because when somebody wrongs us, somebody treats us unjustly, unfairly, you don't just want to plead your case before the judge, do you? No, I, I want to be the prosecuting attorney. I want to be the judge, the jury, the executioner as well. I probably also want to be the court stenographer who's going to keep a written record of everything that was said. I want all the jobs. 
But you see, and there's tons of problems with that, but one of the key problems with pursuing that and calling it justice is that it assumes a level of omniscience. It assumes a level of seeing every detail, seeing heart motives that's not possible for anyone but God to have, which therefore often ends up leading us pursuing something much closer to vengeance than it does to justice. So yes, absolutely seek justice. God's word commands us to do as much, but just acknowledge the reality that your limited viewpoint, as well as the sin that clouds all of our judgment, can very often lead you to pursue and hand down a judgment that is not truly just. It should give us pause. It should give us caution when we pursue justice because of those reasons. So that's the, the, the first thing that's often presented whenever you talk about trusting justice into God's hands. The second thing that is very often said, very often brought out is this. People would say, you know what, that sounds great. It's good, you're right. That, that's probably really helpful for a lot of people. Good. But uh, you don't know what's been done to me. You don't know what's been taken from me. I wish that my only struggle was someone trying to take my life and seek my life. I, I wish that was my only problem and not this hell that I have to live every day now because of what happened. And if that's the place where you're coming from this morning, a place where you know you can't bring about justice because no amount of eyes or teeth taken could ever make up for what's been taken from you, first thing I want to just say is that my heart breaks for you. I'm so sorry that you've had to walk through that. But secondly, I want to show you and, and have you see my, my prayer for you is that you would actually find the most hope of any of us as we study David's actions here. Because don't you see that the reason David is entrusting justice to God is because He's the only one that can truly bring about justice for him in these actions. He knows there's nothing I can do. There's no human court I can go to that's going to balance the scales back here. Just taking your life, that's not going to balance the scales. I can't bring about justice myself. I need to seek a higher authority, a higher court in order for justice to take place. And it's the same for you. If that's your place where you know I can't bring about justice we have a place we can go. We have a place where we can submit our appeal and justice can truly be brought about by one who does see. He does know all the facts. And he can truly bring about justice for that and for you and that thing that's happened to you. You know, centuries later, Jesus himself would display the very same actions that David did. Jesus, the truly innocent one who was falsely accused, Beaten, mocked, spit upon, slapped, crucified like a criminal, experiencing injustice upon injustice upon injustice. His friend and disciple Peter describes it this way, 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threatened, meaning although Jesus could have brought, brought about justice for himself, he didn't. What did he do instead? 
but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's how he could do it. And, and did you notice that word, continued? It wasn't a one-time thing. He had to continually, each time another injustice, each time another memory of what had happened, he had to continually say, no, I'm leaving it to you, Father. I'm trusting you to bring about justice. I'm trusting you to vindicate me. It had to do it continually. And I guarantee you, as you seek justice in your own life for the wrongs that are being committed against you, you're going to have to do it continually as well. It won't be a one-time thing. I don't, know, I don't know where this finds you today. For some of you, you find this whole story to be too much to begin with. It's just like, wow, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of... And, and for you, you can't even really go to this passage because for you, maybe over time, you've just kind of been sucked in, been drawn into this kind of neutered, liberal view of God that would say, you know what? God doesn't judge people like this. He's not angry like this. God just wants to love people and bless people. Sprinkle them with fairy dust. And really what this passage is showing us is that David and Saul just need to learn to get along better with each other. Maybe that's how you really read this. It just seems way too much. As theologian Miroslav Volf wrote in his treatise on the Christian response to human suffering, exclusion and embrace, he said, that kind of belief can only survive in the quiet of a suburb where someone has simply never experienced the kind of horrors and injustices that much of the world experiences on a daily basis. For if God were not angry at sin and injustice and did nothing to bring about a final end to it, that God would not actually be loving. And he would certainly not be a God worthy of our worship. For others, maybe you hear this and, and you want to embrace this. This sounds like, yeah, that sounds right. Yes, I want to embrace that, but the pain of what you've suffered or what you are currently suffering under is just so immense. It's so private and personal to you that you just can't imagine the thought of handing over the final ruling to someone else. It's just too much to think of letting that go and letting someone else, what if they don't do it right? What if they get it wrong? And for others still, as we look at this, it's because... Our past wounds have actually become so cherished to us that we don't want to hand over justice to God because then we know we might have to forgive. We might have to surrender the control that we've had over that person who wronged us all this time. So we don't want to hand over justice. And you know, those are just, those are just three options. There could be many more at the end of the day, the question is, how do we do this? Like, how do we really do this from the heart and mean it? I mean, as Saul rightly asked, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? You've got that person who's wronged you right there at your feet. You're going to let them walk away? You're going to let them get up? How is sur this surrendering of the right to take justice into our own hands, like we see in the life of David, how's that even possible? Just for regular people like you and me. Well, on the one hand, I believe it's possible because before describing how Jesus did it, in that passage we just read in 1 Peter, Peter tells us that Christ suffered this way, not simply just to take our place and take our punishment, but to leave us an example, he said. 
Christ suffered this way to leave us an example that we might follow in his steps. He wanted to show us what it looked like to do it. And say, I'm not just calling you to do it. I'm doing it myself. The most truly innocent one of all. And the good news and the glorious hope of the gospel is that whatever Jesus calls you to, he also will enable you to do. He's not going to call you to do something and say, well, good luck. I hope you can accomplish that. He's going to give you the strength and power to do it. But on the other hand, I believe you can do this for others who have wronged you because don't you, didn't you see it? Didn't you feel it as we were reading through this passage this morning? You can do this for others because this is exactly what God did for you while you were his enemy. As Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, and 10, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? If you know that story of Jean Valjean from Les Miserables, you know, maybe you've read the book, you've seen the movie, you know it's the story of the powerful transformation that takes place one night when a guilty criminal is showed unmerited grace when he deserved nothing but judgment. And then who is so transformed by that act of grace that years later, he's then able to offer grace, offer freedom to this man who's been hunting him and pursuing him all his life. He can now offer that grace to him. And whether we're talking about David, Jean Valjean, you, me, whoever it is, the equation remains the same. Grace received is to result in grace given. Grace received must result in grace given. We're all in need of God's grace. That, that's plain. The question I want you to answer for yourself as we close this morning is this. Who is it that needs your grace today? Who is it that you need to set free today? One deserving of your justice, but in need of your grace. Freely you have received. Jesus told his disciples just before he sent them out to be his witnesses. Freely give. 